like to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 5. And we'll be reading uh, verses 3 and 4, verse 8, and verse 16. Now this message is the third message in a series called Mayflower Misfits. As we're taking this month to kind of think back to our forefathers, the, the pilgrims. Um, just one small, one group out of many different groups of early settlers, but in the imagination and in the thought process of our country, uh, the, the pilgrims loom large. Uh, we think a lot about pilgrims, especially this time of the year. And so <clears throat> this sermon series is basically taking scripture passages Um, Some of them I know for a fact that the pilgrims used in their thinking. Others I think were probably influential in their thinking. But we're taking these passages and we're looking at them in the original biblical context. What was God saying to those folks 2,000 years ago? And then we look at how they applied to the pilgrim setting, how they took God's word and applied it in their day in the early 1600s. And then third, we come back and say, hey, what are we, how should we be living this out 400 years later uh, in in a very different America than what the pilgrims knew? How should we live it out today? So we'll continue on that, uh, on that task. And uh, there is a a bulletin insert, uh, one of the backsides that has a blank outline, but it does have the scripture and title and all that if you want to write notes on that. If you would now, though, please uh, stand with me as we read from 1 Timothy 5, 3, 4, 8, and 16. Take care of any widow who has no one else to take care of her. But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. Verse 16, if a woman who is a believer has a relative who are widows, she must take care of them and not put responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, As we come um, entering into the holiday season, uh, first Thanksgiving and then Christmas and and even New Year's, God, help us to keep in mind those who are truly alone. Help us uh, to keep in mind those who are in need of a touch um, from your body, the church. And I pray that um, as we read this scripture, we would understand that it's power uh, is continuous, that the Word of God is present and strong, uh, just as strong today as it was 400 years ago for the pilgrims and 2,000 years ago for Timothy and those in his care. Lord, we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So, the Bible, we call it a book, but it's really a collection of books. It's a portable library of all the things that, that, um, that have been handed down to us uh, in our faith. And uh, it's, a, it's got historical works, 
Uh, it's got poetry. It's got wisdom literature. It's got letters. It's all sorts of different things that those who are inspired by God wrote, and they've all been put together for us in one book today. Uh, early believers didn't have this all nice and handy like this. If, if they were very lucky, they had some access to a few scrolls or someone in their congregation did. But we're very blessed to, to have the Bible. The Bible um, contains for us, like I said, so many different types of works and different types of letters. And some of the letters are, are specific letters or epistles uh, to a certain church. Some are called general letters. They were written to whoever was a Christian or whoever, whatever church existed in a certain broad geographical area. And then there were three letters that were actually written, and they're called pastoral letters, and that's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And these pastoral letters, rather than writing to a, a church as a whole, although churches obviously benefit from them, these letters were specifically written to two young men who were mentored by Paul. So you have Timothy, who got two letters, and Titus, who got one. And so in these letters, it's really, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of good doctrine in them, but there's a lot of just practical, here's how you actually run a church. You know, older minister to younger minister, look, there's going to be problems, there's going to be trials, there's going to be issues, but here's how you need to take care of them. Here's the nuts and bolts uh, of, of ministry. That's what Paul was trying to get across to these folks. And so he comes on this issue uh, at this point. He's been talking about all sorts of different household and relationship issues. And he says, now let's talk about widows. Now the translation that I'm reading out of today, uh, New Living Translation, it says, uh, take care of any widow who has no one else to take care of her. Uh, a more literal translation uh, says, take care of widows who are really widows. Now, that's kind of interesting. Are there people out there, you know, do you imagine that there was people who faked that their husband died and they weren't really widows? No, that's not what Paul was talking about. He's talking about the fact that the word widow really, uh, in our society, it mostly simply means someone who's lost their husband or a widower lost his wife. But uh, in the ancient world, widow meant more than someone who had simply had their spouse die. It was, along with the word orphan, it referred to someone who was alone in the world, someone who was helpless, someone who basically, you know, they were at, at the disposal, they were at the mercy of society around them because they had no way to protect or provide for themselves. We have to remember in these days that it was a very patriarchal society. And, and so if you were a grown man everything was geared towards you. If you were a child or, or if you were a woman who was unconnected to a man who had power and influence, you were at everybody's mercy. And so when Paul says, hey, I want to talk to you about how you take care of widows who are really widows, he, he's not saying there's some people who faked losing a spouse. When he says real widows, he said, he's talking about those who are truly alone those who really do not have anybody to take care of them. And he says, here's how you need to, to deal with them. And he goes on, and he, he, we're not reading all the verses in between, but he basically sets up a special class uh, of folks in that day. Remember, there was, there was no Social Security. You know, there was no governmental help for people who fit between the, fell between the cracks. 
And he goes on and says, okay, look, you know, and we got to remember in that day too, marriage was very much, um, it wasn't quite so much, oh, it's all about a soulmate that I'm going to find. <laughs> marriage was a, really a, a contractual in a lot of ways, like, okay, I'm a man, you're a woman, we can work together and build a house and we can survive, get through things together. And, and so he simply says to younger widows, hey, if you're still young and, and able to find a spouse, go ahead and go remarry and, and live your life. But he, said, he sets up a special class, almost like you have elders and deacons. And then there was almost this, this special group of widows that were, they were older widows, they truly had no family, and, and they would serve um, in the church. They would take a vow. They would serve in the church. They weren't out there on the dating circuit trying to get remarried. They weren't out getting in people's business, but they became servants of the church. And the church would provide for these people who fit some specifications. But he talked about, he said, look, for most widows, we need to make sure we understand that people should take care of their own. You've all heard the phrase, charity begins at home, right? And some people probably even think that's in the Bible. Well, that exact phrase is not a biblical phrase, but the, the concept, though, is right here in this passage. When he talks about, um, <clears throat> in verse 8, but those who won't care for their own relatives, especially in their own household, have denied the true faith, and such people are worse than unbelievers. Paul says this, yes, the church body needs to look out for those within its own household, church members who are truly, totally helpless. So by the way, this doesn't just mean uh, a woman or even an orphan. It could be a, a disabled man who had, had no one to help them. Paul said those who are truly, truly in need, we need to help them. But we need to be really, really careful that first, that those who are actually have family, that their family is taking care of them, that they're doing their part. Now, he's not really talking about unbelievers because he knows he has no control over unbelievers. But he says, listen, if you don't take care of your own family, you are worse than an unbeliever. You can talk big and say, hey, I love Jesus all you want. But you are, your faith, your words are being denied by your actions. And all of us, he says, take care of those who are at home. Take care of your family, especially your immediate family. And he even goes so far to, to add a little bit to it over in verse 16, that last verse we read, where it says, If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put responsibility on the church. Here's why I think he added that. I think he added that in those cases where in the early church, a lot of families were, you know, we have house divided now, Ole Miss and Mississippi State. Well, it, you know, we joke about that. But there is, a, there is the house divided in a very real sense back then when the gospel was spreading and the husband or the wife might hear and receive the gospel, but the other spouse might not. You know, nowadays, if we're living in a household where it's divided, generally speaking, people knew that going in. Well, I just love them anyway, uh, even though they're not a believer and, and they get married. And, but in this case, they were already married and they accept Jesus. And, and so Paul comes back here and says, look, 
even if you are a woman and your husband is not a believer, but you're a believer, you still have a responsibility to do all that you can to take care of your family before you come to the church and say, look, hey, you know, so-and-so really needs help. And it's very interesting that human nature is not any different today than, than it was 2,000 years ago. I recently was asked to, to help identify some people in need for some folks who wanted to help them. And I was talking to them, and, and I was just one of many people. And we talked about the fact that it's so tough. Some of the people who are really in need, they say, no, 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 I, I, I don't want that help. And those who are not so much in need sometimes are greedy and grasping for it. And so it, it's really tough, this issue of how do we deal with people who are in need. But Paul here, basically, he breaks it down. He says, look, people who are in need are those who are really in need. They do not have family and friends that can take care of them. And oh, by the way, if you're one of those family and friends, man or woman, whoever you are, if you have the ability to help them out at all, you need to do so first before you come to the church and ask for help for this person. So now... How did this affect the early pilgrims? Well, we need to pick up our story from last week. We started off talking about the, the situation in England around the year 1600 and how there was stuff going on. The, a lot of people were not happy with the English church, even though they weren't part of the Catholic church anymore. A lot of folks said, hey, it's not reformed enough, and they were called the Puritans. And then other folk, and they were trying to purify the church and make it more like what they thought it should be. And other folks who were separatists, that is, they separated themselves, they said, we can't even fix this. We need to do our own thing. And so they started doing their own thing. These groups, separatist groups, started popping up all over the country. And one in this little town called Scrooby popped up. And they worshiped on their own and did pretty well for four, five, six, seven years. But then they started getting persecuted. People, that some of their members were getting harassed. They were getting arrested. They were having people spy on them and report on them all the time. It, it was very similar to what we might see today where the underground church in China or different places is persecuted. And so last week we said that so for the sake of freedom, they moved to um, the Netherlands. They moved to Holland, excuse me. So where they were, they were what was called in the lower country, they, um, they went there because they heard there was religious freedom. Now, it wasn't an easy trip. Uh, one of the historians of this early group said they had an amazing capacity for getting duped, okay? <laughs> because this was not something where they could just book a flight. It was actually kind of illegal to leave their country, not illegal for the place they were going, but England didn't want to let any of these people go. They wanted to make them stay there and stay under the rule of the king. And so they, they finally snuck out after getting gypped and, and ripped off a few times. They found someone who was able to take them uh, to a new place. And so those pilgrims left, and they went to Amsterdam. And in Amsterdam, they found the religious liberty that they wanted. Uh, there was all sorts of groups, much wider different uh, range of religious groups than they would ever have seen in England. But there were still some issues there. There were some other separatists who were there, and, and some of these other separatists 
Well, you know how people who fight and separate, they tend to fight and separate again and fight and separate again. And, and they got around some of these other separatists, different congregations, and, and, and they, there were some controversies there. What's really funny about it to me is uh, there was a controversy over what translation of the Bible should be used. Now, why this is funny to me is because this was just before 1611. So the King James was not the one that they were fighting about. The King James Version hadn't yet come out. So in case you didn't know, King James was not the first English translation. But they were already fussing and fighting about what translation should we use. And, and some of them were fussing about, oh, wait, is the baptism this way or that way really valid? And, and there was a lot of fussing going on. And so... This group from Scrooby that we've been talking about, who become our pilgrims, they said, you know, I, I don't know that this city of, this big city of Amsterdam is for us. And so they moved over to another city, a city called Leiden. And in Leiden, they found the peace that they wanted. Uh, they were able to establish their congregation. They, they asked the, uh, the burgermeisters of the city, those in charge of the city, could they come and bring their group? And the, the leader said, sure, you can come and move here as long as you're peaceful and don't cause problems. So they moved over there. And they set up their congregation. They had about 100 people in their congregation at this point. And, and they built the pastor uh, was the first home they built. They built a huge home for the pastor. Pretty nice, okay? No, they built this huge home for the pastor so that the church could meet in the pastor's home. So it was basically like if I had a little apartment back here, okay, and the rest of this was built for worship, that's, that's how they did it. They built him a really big home where they could all come and meet, and then uh, they tried to build their little homes around. And, and uh, the historian, the people who wrote about those days said they had a sweet fellowship, things were going really well. In fact, other groups were coming over from England, some other separatist groups come and join them. And so after a few years, their congregation had grown from 100 to 400. So you had growth, you had peace, uh, you, you had religious freedom. And so we might begin to question then, why did they ever leave? If they had freedom of religion, if they had the ability you know, to do what they wanted to do with their church and, and it was growing, why would anybody ever leave and go to America? Well, freedom of religion is a wonderful thing. But you know what I found out is that we all need to eat as well. We all have issues in our lives of providing for ourselves financially and providing for our children and their upbringing. And here's where we come into the thinking and the issues um, that, that prompted them to eventually, in 1620, land on Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts. They had the religious freedom. That was great. But these early settlers, they were struggling to make a living. Now, I entitled this uh, message, Pilgrim's, Pilgrim's Pride and the Need to Provide. Now, if I asked you what Pilgrim's Pride is, some of you would say it's a brand name for a certain food company, and that is true. But I was thinking about uh, my country, Tis of Thee, land where my fathers died, land of the Pilgrim's Pride. 
In, in that first verse uh, of My Country Tis of Thee, we talk about the pilgrim's pride. And I believe that pilgrim's pride was their work ethic. We talk about in our country the, the, the Protestant work ethic from the early uh, settlers. We talk about those who worked so hard and, 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 and built themselves and their civilization up. And I believe that these folks, they were not lazy at all. They were hard, hard workers. Paul wouldn't have had to say a lot of this stuff to them. I mean, they got it. They understood we have to provide. We have to work hard and take care of our own. And that's great when the opportunities are available. But see, here's what happened. When these folks left their land in England... Most of them, Scrooby was not some big old town, okay, rural area. Most of these folks were farmers, and they left behind their property and their, all of their farms and every, their equipment and everything they had, and they had to sell most of it. Remember, they got gypped a bunch of times, and people took advantage of them. Finally, they, and they paid to get over there. By the time they were set up, here were these farmers in a place where they didn't own any farms, and they had to go to work. And, and the big thing back then uh, was the, was the uh, fabric-type industry, looms, before everything had been automated the way it is today. People would set up a loom in their home, and they would work constantly, constantly with this loom, uh, trying to create this fabric. And basically, they were struggling terribly. They went from not rich people, but people who could provide for themselves pretty well on their own land, to people who were living very close to poverty level type thing here. They say the early homes were incredibly small. The homes of that era right around then, many of them would have been around uh, 200 square feet. Now imagine that. Those of us who've lived at times in homes that are 1,500 or 1,000 square feet, we say, oh, I lived in a small home. This is 200 square feet. Some who were loomers might have had a little bigger house just to fit that loom in it. But basically, they were struggling financially. And not only were they struggling financially to provide, and they knew they had to provide for their family financially, but they were struggling to provide for them a place to fit in their society. While they were worshiping freely, everybody around them, even the other, quote, Christians that were around them, they thought were living uh, lax and immoral lives and, and, and weren't, you know, taking care of their kids. And it even said there's a story of when they would try to teach their own kids the right thing, the Dutch who were living around them would say, hey, quit getting on to your kids. They're just trying to, you know, they're just trying to live life. I mean, they would actually tell them, hey, you foreign people, don't come in and raise your kids that way. And, and, and they would be ridiculed for that. And they noticed some of their kids who were work, living under these strained conditions were very tempted to live the way of the Dutch. And they said, we're going to lose who we are as a people. Uh, they may have not liked the king of England and, and some of the rules, but they had their identity as English people and, and, and the identity of their faith. And they said, we don't want to lose these things. And so while many of us would say, why did the pilgrims grow to Plymouth Rock? And the first thing we would say is religious liberty. Well, kind of. That was the reason they left England. They left England to get that religious liberty. But when they got over there to Amsterdam, they realized 
hey, we have religious liberty, but yet we're not able to provide for our family. And their uh, work ethic, their desire to see their families uh, do well, made them begin to think about this trip. Now, we'll talk about the trip and how it ended up next week, but I'll tell you this, it wasn't easy. Not everybody in the congregation agreed that we should leave. A lot of them brought up a lot of, hey, some people might get sick, some people might die, things might not work out. And guess what? A lot of things didn't work out, although they worked out in the end. But they came to this point where they said, hey, we want to worship God freely, but we also want to be able to take care of our own family. We want to look at ourselves in the mirror and be able to say, hey, I'm providing and taking care of my family, not only financially, but I'm raising them up in the right environment. And so it was religious liberty plus providing for their family and bringing up their children in an environment that they wanted. That was what led them to end up making the move. So, coming back to Timothy, how does this affect us today? I think certainly um, we're able to see what I love about the Bible and even Christian history throughout the years is that people are people. You know, we look at pilgrims and those funny hats and the black and the white, and, you know, we see... we. Imagine them at the table, and here's Squanto and, and the, uh, the chiefs and all these. And, and we make them almost just other, like they're just so different from us a world away. But you notice how they had the same concerns that we have? They had concerns for their health because looming and this hard work was wearing them out and wearing down their bodies. They had concerns for practicing their faith. They had concerns for paying their bills. They had concerns for bringing up their children. Same things that we have concerns and fears and worries about today. The interesting thing was about them is that their theology did not necessarily say that God was going to just zap some answer, you know, write it in the sky or on the wall. They just believed that they had to use wisdom and make the best decision that they could to live out their faith, providing for their family and their children. And, and, and that idea brought them to where they are. So as today, where are we at? Well, I think we all need to come back to the work ethic and to the pride that those early settlers had. And we'll look more next week at what the difficulties they faced were, but they were enormous and some of those things people said about, hey, bad things are going to happen, bad things did happen. And yet they persevered. Yet they said, hey, we're going to provide. We're going to take care of. They were not nearly so individualistic as we are today. The world that says, hey, take care of number one because no one else will and forget about everybody else. They believed in taking care of their own. Uh, they believed in working hard. They believed in not living off of others if they were able to do for themselves. In the world we live in today, we need to look out for people who are really in need. And often those are not the loudest voices. Often those are not the people who even may be asking for help. Perhaps they will be. 
I, I was uh, traveling uh, to see Courtney in a cross-country race. And uh, it was down around Clinton. And I went through after the race. Uh, this has been a couple weeks ago. Left, left there and was coming back home and uh, went through a drive-thru. And a man approached me in line. You've, you've probably had that experience before. It's common. We all have. And I want, you know, I kind of like, you know, when you kind of first, uh, and I'm not making eye contact, but he's still going to stand there anyway. Okay, so I roll down the window, and I talk to him, and he says he wants, he needs something to eat. And, you know, I don't know what this guy's deal was, what his story was, but I feel like, hey, he didn't ask for money. He asked for something to eat. I'll buy him something to eat. Went around. I said, go wait over there on the other side. And I just took what I ordered and ordered the same thing for him, went around and gave it to him. Now, that didn't make me a hero. Everybody does that kind of thing, okay? But some things are easy like that. I mean, yes, what it cost me, six, seven, eight bucks for a Wendy's Baconator combo, okay? And, and, and he took it and, oh, that's telling what I ate. Okay. Uh, yeah, but anyway, I thought that, you know, hey, I can help this guy. This is not a big risk. He took it. He said, thank you so much. God bless you. And I went on and he went on. And he had a good meal that day. I don't know what he, you know, the rest of his things were. We, we all have situations like that, and that's fairly easy. You know, I'm not really missing that seven or eight bucks that it cost me, okay? There are times and situations where it gets more costly and more difficult, though. We need to use our discernment. Uh, we need to, to be careful. Um, but where there's true need, and, and here's the thing. Let's also realize, even though Paul commanded that Christians look out for their own, sometimes there are situations where people get in need and their own is not looking out for them. Their own are not helping them. And we can say all day long, hey, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so should help them. But if they're not helping them, then what are we going to do? That's where I believe our Christian compassion uh, kicks in and where we say, hey, uh, it's a judgment call. Nobody can look at me, no, nobody can look at you and say, no, you should have done this or you shouldn't have done that. It's between you and the Lord where you pray and you ask for wisdom and you say, God, what would you have me do? And a lot of times in those situations, you're kind of like, okay, 51%, they're really in need, and 49%, this might be a scam artist, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to go for that because it seems like I think they're really in need. And we do our best to, to reach out. What I love about Thanksgiving and Christmas is it helps us to recognize the things that we should recognize all year long. That there are people um, in need. And I would say this as well. Where Paul talked about widows who are really widows, um, there's more than just financial need, though. There are people who are in emotional need. There are people who are in need of human contact and love, and they don't need your $5 or your happy meal, but they really could use a touch from you, a call on the phone or a visit or something like that. As we look at this Thanksgiving season, I want you to think about those 
who are truly alone and those who are truly in need and how you can reach out and make a difference in their lives. Let's pray today. Father God, we come to you and we thank you so much again for your word, for um, how powerful it is. Lord, how it teaches us to appreciate your good gifts and your blessings for us and also to look out for those who are in need. What a privilege it can be to uh, be the hands and be the feet of Jesus, to actually be used uh, to touch. And your word tells us that sometimes, sometimes we have even, without even knowing it, we've actually touched or blessed an angel, a messenger of God. And we didn't know it, we were simply reaching out and touching and and, and helping somebody. Father, help us to be those type of helpers who bless you by blessing your people. God, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.